Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we ask about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So our guest today has been really busy this year trying to explain what's wrong with at least one of our political institutions and how to fix it. Adam Gentleson is the author of a new book, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. He's a former deputy chief of staff to Senator Harry Reid and a frequent contributor to MSNBC. And lately he's everywhere talking about filibuster reform as it's been getting a whole lot more attention. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I want to start by laying out your basic argument in this fantastic book. How did the filibuster as we now know it essentially kind of, as I understand it, a passive way for senators to block legislation? How did this develop and and kind of what is what is the case for reforming it? So the basic argument of the book is that the Senate started out as a sort of free and open leaderless and uh, importantly, majority rule institution. I think there's there's really no debate about the fact that that was how it was created and that in its original form, uh, it was possible for uh, a majority to take a bill all the way from introduction to passage with no supermajority hurdles in between, aside from the specific ones enumerated in the in the Constitution. And the argument is that it evolved into the institution we know today, where it is custom customary for uh, most major legislation to require 60 votes and therefore to allow a minority of uh, senators, a numerical minority of senators, to block uh, anything they choose to unite against. And that the evolution from this majority rule institution into this uh, minority veto institution happened unintentionally. And in key instances where this evolution occurred, uh, the primary motivation was the maintenance of white supremacy and the continued oppression of Black Americans. The two sort of turning points the book looks at are the middle of the 19th century, where John Calhoun um, started to innovate what we sort of would now describe as the talking filibuster. He wasn't the only one to use the filibuster. It wasn't called the filibuster at the time. It took some time to acquire that name, but there were you know people practicing obstruction, but in a scattershot, pretty limited way. Uh, and Calhoun's innovation was to, to fuse the obstructionist tactics with this lofty defense of minority rights and sort of asserting that principle as a foundational feature of the Senate. And as I argue, in contravention of, of what the framers intended. Uh, and then the other major turning point is during the Jim Crow era, after the introduction of Senate Rule 22, which was supposed to give a supermajority of senators the ability to cut off debate when they thought it had veered into obstruction, but ended up being applied as a de facto supermajority threshold um, only to civil rights for the first several decades of its existence in any systematic way. Uh, And then later through the changes of the 70s and 80s, starting to evolve into a tool that was commonly used on lots of different bills. Um, And then to the point where we have it today, where it is used on every bill, every regular order bill. So that's the argument of the book. uh, And the basic thesis is that it wasn't meant to be this way. Uh, And if senators choose to change the Senate back to a primarily majority rule institution, they should do so. I think they should do so. And I think that this would be good and healthy for the institution. And it would be in keeping with uh, what the framers intended. I'm not an originalist myself, but I thought it was useful since this debate often revolves around um, questions of intent and what the system itself should be to, to dive into that. So that's the basic theory of the book, and I'm excited to discuss it with you guys. 
Yeah, that, I, I thought that this argument that you make about the Senate being intended to be a majority rule body was really fascinating because that misconception to me seems so, so widespread. I'm going to hand this off to James, who is our, our other resident Senate person, to, <laughs> to ask you some stuff. First of all, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. I, I read the book. I really enjoyed the book. I recommend the book uh, to our listeners. And I, when I first picked it up, it it's probably no surprise to you. I didn't think I would agree with it as much as I did. And I, you know, and I did find a lot in there that I disagree with that we can talk about and, or maybe I have a slightly different perspective, but I think overall the central kind of idea that the Senate is broken and the manifestation of that brokenness, I think is spot on. And when you write early on in the book about the soul crushing bureaucracy of the Senate, I think is, is so true and it so fits my experience at the end of the of my career inside the chamber is it really is just soul crushing and it's not this kind of great deliberative body. But before we get into the filibuster, before we get into why the Senate's broken, I really, I would like it if we could just compare notes briefly about our time as staffers on the floor. And, and I think that this change has really, while it's been underway for a while, it was fairly abrupt and fairly quickly because when I first started in the Senate, it was not necessarily as soul-crushing as it is now. It was still a very dynamic place. Lots of stuff could happen. And I was reminded of that when reading your fabulous description of the Democratic cloakroom. And for our listeners, the cloakrooms are those uh, two rooms on the back of either side of the, the Senate chamber. And I, the, the Republican cloakroom staff can go in and out. The Democratic cloakroom, my understanding was that they you couldn't necessarily go in there if you were just a regular rank and file staffer, certainly not a Republican staffer. But I remember during one defense authorization bill debate, I got yanked into that cloakroom. It was the most terrifying experience I ever had in the Senate. And I was confronted with Pat Leahy, Carl Levin, John McCain, and Lindsey Graham. And it was over an indefinite detention Gitmo amendment. And at one point, I think Graham yelled at me and told me that he was going to throw me in Gitmo if I didn't like find my senator and back down or something. It was fascinating. And, and my question to you is just, it's a very practical and obvious question. I didn't look around in the Democratic cloakroom. In the Republican cloakroom, we have these fake windows with curtains on them to make it appear like you are in like next to an outside wall for some reason. Do those exist in the Democratic cloakroom? I was too busy being terrified by being yelled at by senators to, to look around and notice. Yes, they do. And I was and I think I asked about them at one point and was told that they used to actually look out onto something. So that they weren't always designed just to be fake. I can't, I can't conceptualize the. the I think physical I had space. that same exchange with someone, and I think it was the actual hallway, and it yeah. was maybe a safety precaution or something that they they closed them up. Well, and I know they used to have a lot of ventilation issues too. So I think it, it could have been, and and there was you know plenty of smoking going on back in the day as well. So um, and not all that long ago, but yeah, yeah, no, they they have those. Um, it's one of the few sort of interesting features. The other one is the the phone booths that they still have, which are which are pretty cool. You know, they're these big old wooden phone booths installed uh, in inside the cloakroom, where you know you could use the phone in them, or you could just take your cell phone in, and senators do. But you know, other than that, yeah, it's it it. I write in the book that it feels like the coat check area of an of an old restaurant that used to be popular, and 
in my mind, I have one in particular called the Brown Derby in Scottsdale, Arizona that I used to go to with my grandparents that it evokes for me. But yeah, I mean, it's not glorious. It's not fancy. And, you know, it's certainly the center of action. But as I talk about in the book, there's there's a lot less action. There's there's not a lot of wheeling and dealing. Very few deals are struck because much of almost all of what happens is handed down from leadership. I think, you know, um, on, during a voterama or something like that, when there's actually a quorum gathered on the floor and senators are casting votes uh, in sort of rapid succession and people are trying to figure out what's coming up next and it's unpredictable, in those rare instances, you might might see some action. But, you know, typically it's just a hallway that senators walk through on their way to the floor. Maybe they stop and ask the staff, you know, what the vote is and how they're recommended to vote and things like that. But it's not lively. It's pretty dead. And it is pretty soul crushing to sit there and think that this once was sort of a center of action and is now just the place where orders are handed down. Yeah, I was uh, I tell I would tell staffers who would come and work for me that if you wanted to influence things in the Senate, it was like watching paint dry. You have to be there and you have to stare at it constantly, because if you look away, it's going to dry and it happens all at once. And if you're not there when it happens, you're going to miss it. But one of the things I'd like to briefly before handing it off to to Lee here, talk about Harry Reid, your former boss. But one of the things I used to do with senators to, you know, really annoy some of the leadership staff on our side, the Republican side, is we would get off the elevators and we would walk around the Senate floor and we would enter the floor through the doorway right across from Harry Reid's office. And it would always freak out the Republicans. Like, why are you over there? What's going on? It was like, we just, it was so much fun. Right, because it looks like you just came out of his office and they're like- Right, there's only one reason to walk into that door. And that's because you came out of Reid's office. Even the Democrats don't walk through that door usually because the elevators are right next to the Republican side of the floor. But uh, briefly on Reid, you know, I've had a bit of a a sea change on uh, Reid- over the years. And I used to think he was a terrible Senate leader. And maybe that was because of differences in policy views. I certainly still am not a big fan of the nuclear option, which we can get into. But in looking and trying to be more detached about Harry Reid and trying to understand how he led the Senate and understanding that leadership differs uh, depending on the environment in which uh, leaders exist, I look at Harry Reid and I specifically from like 2008 to say, you know, when he left the Senate and I see his I see him leading a very divided Democratic caucus. I see him trying to maintain control of his Senate and I see him shutting the floor down in, in large response to things that the members for whom I worked were doing, but then shifting and having enough wherewithal to understand that that deliberation has to occur somewhere shifting those decisions and those arguments into the Democratic conference, and then basically working through that and having these arguments behind closed doors, but then coming out and and keeping the party unified and pivoting at the last minute, negotiating and all of this stuff. And I think I've really come to conclude that I think Harry Reid is the most skilled And I say that's skilled. I mean, we can say who's the greatest leader, who's your favorite leader, but the most skilled leader of all time, simply because I think he was able to succeed in an environment where lesser lights otherwise could not have succeeded. I think just looking at Mitch McConnell's experience in a similar situation illustrates how skilled Reid was. I think he had a real appreciation of the rhythm of of politics. I, I always enjoyed negotiating with him, with his staffers like Douster and others. 
he was the kind of person you could deal with. He would drive a hard bargain and he would screw you when he could, but he would always be above board and you could see him coming. And I don't know, is that, am I wrong to have that impression of him? I mean, what is your, how do you see Reed and his leadership and how do you compare it historically to past Senate leaders and the environments they um, led in? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, you won't you won't get any argument from me on on his skill, but I'm I'm very biased on this one. Um, you know, I, I try to listen to the criticism and I try to take it in and evaluate it, and I certainly agree with with some of the the points and the many criticisms that have been lodged against him. But but I but I fundamentally do agree that that I think that he encountered an environment that was extraordinarily difficult, extraordinarily polarized did not allow for a lot of movement. He also, within this environment of polarization, he had a caucus that hadn't really accepted how polarized things were and still wanted to sort of push against it. And, you know, for for laudable reasons. But I think that Reed, especially after his 2010 reelection, concluded that this was a deeply polarized environment, that Republicans were, were unlikely to negotiate um, with the intention of trying to find an actual compromise on most issues. And even if they started out that way, that McConnell was usually going to be able to pull them over to toe the party line and serve the higher goal in their minds, the higher political goal of of obstructing Democrats in order to to gain politically. And I think that he, you know, he he did his best to navigate that. I mean, the caucus was certainly divided. We had it's it's mind-boggling to think about, but we had, you know, between 58 and 60 votes from 2009 to 2010. And even with that an extraordinary number of votes, it was hard to get uh, Democrats um, to, to stay in line. Um, there certainly were, would not, I think of the caucus today as being, you know, much smaller in number, but a higher density in terms of, you know, being inclined towards things like reforming the filibuster rules. I think there are probably more votes in the smaller caucus today for reform than there were in the bigger caucus of 2009. So yeah, I mean, look, he, 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 he was a, if anything, he would he would consider himself a realist. He was an unsentimental guy. Um, he did care about the institution, but I think that he knew that it was changing, and he tried to adapt. You could certainly argue cause and effect. Did his his sort of iron fisted control of the floor, filling the tree, denying the other side amendments, um, did that help cause polarization? You could argue it did. Um, but I think that by the time I would argue that by the time he started doing a lot of that stuff, uh, that process had been used was not being used to try to facilitate compromise, um, but was rather being used for political hits. You could counter argue that that's part of the game and that's what Senate senators do, they take tough votes. But I think that he, he did his best to try to strike a balance and navigate through the, the conditions that he found the institution in. So, you know, he, he would probably, he, he, he always wanted to be seen as an institutionalist. Um, I think that by the end of his career, he realized that was not in the cards for him. But I think that at this point, you know, I, I, I personally think that where the Senate is headed, and I think some of the changes that are inevitable, hopefully sooner rather than later, but I think definitely inevitable at some point, um, will probably vindicate his his idea that the Senate really had to start returning to a majoritarian body, because the highest order goal here is not the maintenance of rules or traditions or those sorts of things when those stop serving the most important goal, which is to produce actual thoughtful policy solutions to the challenges that we face. And I think that we're headed in that direction. And I think that will maybe be a vindication of his of his leadership. I have so many questions for you, Adam. Um, but you know, one of the things that, that I uh, want to really think about in thinking about the filibuster is the sort of remarkable persistence of the filibuster 
Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a, a weird thing, right? I mean, I, I don't think there's any other legislature in the world that uses a 60 vote threshold uh, to to pass legislation. Um, and one of the things that I enjoyed in reading your book was, you know, learning about some of the attempts over the years to to kind of limit the filibuster and the way the filibuster itself uh, has changed over time. So, I mean, obviously, it's it's a you know, it's not not set in stone. It's certainly not in the Constitution. It's certainly evolved. But, you know, I think as a political scientist, put, putting on that hat for a second, um, you know, I might say, OK, well, if it, if an institution like that persists, it must be in the interest of senators uh, writ large to keep it because they vote to decide their own rules. So there must be something about it that they like that makes it easier for them to win reelection. Uh, makes it easier for them to organize. There must be something rational about that. Alternately, if I think of it more in a political sociology way, I might say, well, you know, it's, it's just the norm and it's the default. And there's sort of this sense of tradition and that's how we've done things. So why would we change things? Do you, do you think either of those explanations work as a way of understanding why the filibuster persisted as long as it has? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a combination of both, you know, when you add in heavy doses of, of a collective action problem and and status quo bias. You know, one of the things I tried to do in the book and that was, you know, interesting in the research was to highlight there were, you know, at least a number of periods in Senate history where there did appear to be a majority of the Senate in favor of reform. It's not 100% conclusive, but it's it does seem to be backed up by the political science and the contemporaneous accounts and, and I tried to show that, you know, right now in the current debate, reformers are generally sort of classified as radicals, but I wanted to show that the reform tradition runs through a lot of the leading lights and, you know, moderates and, and um, sort of great figures of the Senate, starting with Henry Clay. And that was one of the clearest examples where, you know, he saw Calhoun starting to evolve this new method and clearly understood its power, Clay did. And, and tried to get rid of it. And it was sort of a classic example because Calhoun was basically able to maneuver Clay into choosing between his top legislative priority, a concrete accomplishment, which at the time was uh, a bank bill um, in 1841, and choosing between that bill, which was the top priority for the administration at the time, and the sort of more abstract goal of reform. And after weeks and months of this filibuster, Clay's passion for reform and his, the number of votes he had for reform dwindled and he had to choose the bank bill either out of an affirmative choice or because where he initially seemed to have a majority of votes for reform, he, he lost it over time due to this filibuster and the persistence of Calhoun. Um, another instance was in 1891 where you had two senators who could not possibly embody sort of the Senate establishment more. Uh, you had Henry Cabot Lodge and you had Nelson Aldrich, the uh, creator of the Federal Reserve, the a creator of the progressive tax code and, you know, pillar of the East Coast establishment whose family married into the Rockefellers, um, advocate for reform in favor of a, uh, a civil rights bill, an anti-poll tax bill. And again, it, at, you know, in a recorded vote seemed to have a majority for both reform and for the, the what was called the force bill at the time, because um, it forced the South to allow uh, Black Americans to vote. But, you know, we're outmaneuvered basically by the by the anti-reformers. So I think that there is and then and then in the critical period during the Jim Crow era, there was never 
sort of anything that can be construed as a strict vote for reform explicitly, although you did have the passage of Rule 22 indicating that the Senate wanted to give itself the tools to, to try to restrict debate. And, and within within the, the committee that, that voted to, to establish Rule 22, the, there was a majority on the committee to set the threshold at a, at a majority to end debate, but they sought consensus and set it at a supermajority. But you had the Southerners, you know, wielding this threat. And it's very hard, I think, as a straight matter of sort of political science to discern how that how much that influenced senators unwillingness to go against them because of course the southerners were massively powerful controlled all of the key committees and if you didn't and made very clear to everybody that maintaining and empowering the filibuster and specifically building up the cloture rule as as a tool to use against civil rights was pretty much their number one priority and if you wanted to have a future in the senate you better uh, acquiesce uh, or certainly not oppose their effort to, to do this. And so I think it makes it hard to, to evaluate what the authentic will of the Senate was during this period when they were able to wield such intimidation. And then that continued through Russell and Johnson. I described the 1957 effort in the book where ironically, or not ironically, I mean, this was the lay of the land at the time, but Richard Nixon and the Eisenhower administration are teaming up with the leading Senate liberals, Hubert Humphrey, Paul Douglas, and others to try to reform the filibuster in order to pass civil rights. And Lyndon Johnson and Richard Russell team up to uh, beat them back and defeat their effort. And the liberals fell about 13 votes short of being able to reform the filibuster. But again, Lyndon Johnson was wielding massive intimidation. This was at the beginning of the session. So he was waiting to dole out committee assignments and everything that senators cared about until he saw how they voted on reform. A few years later, when Johnson had left the Senate, senators went to the floor and entered into the Senate record evidence of his intimidation because they were still so uh, upset by it. So, you know, I don't think it's, I think it's hard to figure out, I think it's hard to say conclusively that the fact that the Senate has never passed reform uh, on the legislative filibuster means that it wants to keep it. I think that it's always an individual senator's interests. It's always an abstract goal that is sort of disconnected from, from distinct policy issues, although I think that might be changing. Um, and there's always so much pressure not to do it that I think it's hard to get an explicit read. And I think, you know, the defenders of the filibuster want to say that, you know, the fact that it's been there, as you say, for 200 years shows that the Senate embraces it and actively wants it. But I don't think that's an accurate conclusion when you look at the record. Um, there have been multiple sort of you know, majority votes for reform and then the forces that were mustered to keep it in place um, include, you know, massive amounts of intimidation and pressure. So it, it, it's not clean. And I, and I think that, that the bottom line principle is the Senate, if it wants to reform, it should. Um, and if it thinks that this this rule no longer serves the, a productive purpose, uh, it, should, it should certainly advance reform. And if it did so, it would be basically completing the work that Henry Clay tried to start in 1841. And I think that's something senators can feel reasonably good about. So I wanted to kind of jump in in a different direction and maybe put my my cynical hat on, because a lot of what I was reading in your book was actually sort of the history of how the, you know, powerful white conservatives consolidated their power using the available rules. And so, like, there was a point where I kind of felt like, okay, the actual rules are less important in this story than the determination of this particular faction to to dominate, right? And that, that the dynamics of that have changed over time. 
in the sense that that minority, I think, has sort of numerically gotten smaller in the United States as we've become a, a, a true or closer to a true multi-ethnic democracy. And we now have people at the elite level and I think also in the electorate who just like aren't they're not into that. And so my cynical question is kind of like, <laughs> is there any institutional reform that that will really prevent them from doing what they want? Or will they just use whatever Senate rules are, are uh, available or whatever, whatever rules in any context are available to, um, to enact their will? And also, I guess that the corollary to that is, is, is there a possibility? Like, is there a linkage between reforming Senate procedure and some of the goals of kind of a, a more robust racial justice movement, if we do are, you know, if we are looking to, to move forward. And I think there is some, you know, there, there is some energy around the idea that the country could enact some, you know, broad legislation to um, move closer to, to the goal of, of racial justice and a multi-racial democracy. Well, I, I think the two, I think the parts of your question are, are linked because I think that, First of all, I, I, I do think that, you know, you're right. I think a big reason why the filibuster still exists is that it's sort of like in politics, when you do polling, you know, you do the, the um, thermometer readings and that the passion in favor of the filibuster on behalf of white supremacists was so strong and so explicit and explicitly in their own words, you know, for the maintenance of, of Jim Crow and white supremacy that, you know, their passion to keep it vastly outweighed the passion of reformers to to get rid of it, um, you know, part of that is a is a deep question with why it took so long to pass civil rights, and that you know you had extremely you know aggressive anti civil rights sentiment, and then you had sort of some strong pro and much sort of you know some ranging from agnostic to to loose favor in the reform camp. So even though the the, the antis were smaller in number, they they were more passionate, and I think you sort of can see that in the filibuster case as well. But but I think that that's changing, and I think that what's happening is the passion, the collective passion for reform, is starting to overwhelm the desire to keep it. And I, I would not argue that it, the desire to keep it is an explicit desire to maintain white supremacy anymore. I do think that it is it is primarily a keeping the filibuster primarily serves the interests of the sort of predominantly white conservative uh, part of the country. Um, because obstruction is not a neutral uh, tactic or tool. It, it distributes power asymmetrically to conservatives based on the nature of conservatives wanting to stop a lot of things and progressives wanting to pass a lot of things. Um, obviously, that's imperfect, but I think it, it works as a basic framework. But I think the, you know, th there are so many things that progressives want to get done now that are going to run up against the filibuster after we're done with reconciliation, we see what falls out of that process. I think progressives will probably be disappointed about how much was able to pass through reconciliation. A lot of the stuff they're hoping we'll get through will get struck. And there will be all that stuff, plus the stuff that was never going to make it through reconciliation in the first place, like civil rights, statehood, um, many climate change solutions, uh, immigration, gun control. I mean, you know, a long list of progressive priorities that are going to run hard up against the filibuster. And I think the collective force of that is going to what finally overcomes the sort of this combination of status quo bias of, of collective action problem and, and the explicit desire to maintain it to give a conservative minority veto power over what the majority wants to do. But I also think it's explicitly linked to the racial justice question because 
if Democrats, there's a risk in getting rid of the filibuster, and, and Lee's work points points this out too, that you know structurally the Senate is still tilted towards conservatives in a pretty significant way. It's just easier for Republicans to gain seats and easier for them to gain control of the Senate for a combination of reasons. But I think that puts an onus on progressives if they do restore it to a majoritarian institution to try to tilt a system which now stakes conservatives to enormous electoral advantages um, back closer to even. It's a shame that things like automatic voter registration uh, have become classified as democratic issues and that in the practical application of these things, they do help Democrats more than Republicans, but that's more a function of the fact that the populations affected vote overwhelmingly Democrat and there's nothing stopping Republicans from appealing to those populations if they choose to. But I think that it, it's incumbent on Democrats if they return the Senate to a majoritarian institution to pursue racial justice and voting rights and, and expansion of representation to places that deserve it, that happen to be majority minority, in order to, to tilt the structure back to a level playing field or at least get closer to it. And I, I wonder if, if and when we get to that point, whether there's sort of a YOLO aspect that takes over for Democrats. I kind of hope there is, because once you, once you, if, you if and when you reform the rules, you, you better use it to the full advantage in the short window of time that you have. Uh, otherwise, you, you, could, you could end up further tilting things towards Republicans. So, you know, I, I would advocate for reform on, on the basis of principle. I think it's the right thing to do. I started writing this book when Republicans were in unified control of Washington. But uh, I also think that if, if we want to create a more racially just uh, system that, that represents all people equally or tries to approach that standard, um, you're only going to do it if you get rid of the filibuster. And once you do get rid of the filibuster, you better take the steps to, to try to achieve a greater level of equity and equality in our system. I want to pick up on this idea of the filibuster and being a veto. And I think you, in a lot of the history, you allude to how the Senate once worked and how it works today. And I think your description of how it works today is correct. And one of the examples, I think, that will allow us to jump into this idea is how you define a quorum call right at the beginning of the book in the introduction where you you call it a state of suspended animation that blocks all action while the leaders of the two parties are you know negotiating a path forward on a bill that is most likely being filibustered now i want to unpack this though i mean what what's causing the delay in this particular instance and it seems to me that it's the quorum call because the Senate precedents are very clear and explicit. When the Senate isn't doing anything, when no senator is speaking or seeking recognition to speak, the presiding officer must put the question, i.e. have a vote. The Senate can't do any. I mean, it has to do something, right? And so there's a vote. And what we're told is rank and file senators and staff is whenever your senator is done speaking, put the Senate in a quorum call. Put the Senate in a quorum call. The leaders tell you to do that. So in this particular instance, while there may be threats of filibusters, the, the most proximate cause of the delay is the quorum call. This is very similar to during the recent budget uh, voterama. There was a period where I think it was a Shaheen Amendment where the vote was held open for a very long time. And Democrats were saying, we're not going to close this vote until Republicans tell us how many amendments they want to offer and we can nail down that universe. And people were saying, well, the Republicans are filibustering. It's like, well, but the Democrats are the ones who are holding a vote open in very practical and proximate ways, delaying a passage of their budget resolution. And, and so I think it's, while yes, there could be more to the story, I think it's important to start there because it's illustrative of how the Senate could work differently. 
And it also suggests that there's more than one side here, that it takes two to tango, right? And when we talk about the filibuster, when we talk about minority senators or individual senators using it to block things, the fact of the matter is for them to be successful, that you have to have a majority who is willing to allow the Senate to operate in that way. And I think back to the pre-cloture rule Senate before 1917, when there was no cloture rule to end debate on a filibuster and proceed to a final vote, right? And during that period, the Senate passed a lot of big things, maybe not civil rights stuff, but it passed a lot of big things. It passed a lot of controversial things, and it did so on very narrow majorities, not these large super majority, uh, bipartisan supermajority coalitions we see today. And it used other aspects of the Senate rules to do so. And it was actually quite difficult for individuals to successfully filibuster something that the majority was determined to pass unless it happened at the very end of a session. But then fast forward to after the cloture rule in 1917, and all of a sudden the cloture, the filibuster is a veto. When, you know, if you, I remember I went to work for a senator who came from the House to the Senate and there, he was so excited about being able to just object to things. I'm like, well, that's great because the second you try to object to something a lot of people want to pass, you're going to realize how hard it is to do that. And as someone who tried to you know, work for senators and tried to block a lot of stuff, it's really, really hard. And I think that my question to you is why aren't, why doesn't the Senate use, it doesn't have to use cloture. It can do the things, all those things that existed before the cloture rule existed are still there. And the Senate can use those things if it wants to. And we're told, well, the workload, well, the Senate doesn't do anything, right? There's no workload. I mean, as you point out in the book, they're never there, right? It's hard. So I'm, so I guess this question is more about the other side of the filibustering minority coin, which is why is it? And I think you're correct about the leadership and the desire on both sides to have centralized control over the chamber. But you can't have, like the Senate can work just fine, in my opinion, if it uses its rules and goes back to a more free-flowing type energetic environment. But the fact is that we have majorities and minorities and their leaders who don't want it to do so. I mean, what am I missing here? Right. Well, and it's, I would say it's sort of four-sided. It's it's definitely Democrats are responsible for using those tactics and holding quorum calls up and those sorts of things as Republicans, um, as you say. But it's also that the two other sides are the rank and file themselves who have come to like, or at least prefer being led in this way to having the responsibility to set their own schedule. I mean, often it comes back to schedule and they want to go to the gym. They want to go to the gym. They want to fundraise. I mean, they want to do like, who wants to go to the gym at 11 o'clock in the morning every day? Like you got to know whether you're not going to have votes. I mean, you know, it's every Senator expects to wake up every morning to a schedule that, that, you know, lays out every minute of their day. And, and, you know, if you want to pinpoint one cause, I would say it's, it's the, the need to fundraise that, that drives um, senators and their sort of mini operations, their mini empires to, to need to schedule every, every minute of every day, because whatever minute is not being used for senatorial work has to be used for fundraising. It's more complex than that. But I, I just think if you want to put your finger on one driving cause that that would be the one. Um, and as folks know, you know, they, they have the DSCC and the NRSC buildings right across the street. And so senators can literally take 15 spare minutes to walk across the street because they can't do fundraising from their uh, official offices. 
walk across the street, make a few calls, maybe bring in a few thousand bucks and then go back to business and, and they're scheduling operation and they're, you know, are forcing them to, to find every, every available minute to do this stuff. So it, it sounds simplistic, but I, and I think, but I think you can sort of expand it out from fundraising to other things, but basically senators don't have, they don't want to, um, it's a, and it's a choice and I'm not trying to say, you know, let them off the hook here. It's a choice that they don't want to allocate large blocks of time to sitting around on the floor itself or nearby, you know, waiting to hear what the, what the sort of audible is going to be called on the floor. Um, and, and so I think that there's, there's this culture that's developed where they want to be led. But I would also say that I think at the end of the day, it comes back to the need to get 60 votes that, that is the clog in the artery that backs a lot of this stuff up because you simply can't just move forward. And, and the reason I say in the book that, you know, the bill is probably being filibustered. I mean, we also have this sort of, you know, eye of the beholder question of what is a filibuster. And, you know, I think Senate.gov defines it as any effort to block or delay a bill. So it's not just raising an objection. It's not just forcing quotient. It could also be classified, as you say, by, you know, using a quorum call to, to delay action. So, you know, if you use this broad definition, that is a filibuster, but, but fundamentally, the, what what they are negotiating, what the majority leader and the minority leader together are trying to figure out, is is probably a question of how do we get to sixty, and I think that it is a two sided negotiation because you need Republican votes. You have to negotiate with the Republican leader. If you didn't need to negotiate with Republican leader to get, first of all, if you didn't need to get sixty votes, you probably could move forward in a lot of cases and simply go. Um, as you say during that Jim Crow period, which I think is a, super instructive. Um, uh, I feel like I'm going down a lot of cul-de-sacs in the sentence, but I want to stop here for a second to appreciate that that era because I think what you raised is important, which is that you basically had two ways of conducting the passage of legislation during this period. You had civil rights, which had to get sixty, right, had to get a two-thirds majority at the time because that there it was forced to, and then you had every other issue, and every other issue was dealt with in a reasonably timely fashion. It's not not which is not to say that you know the government dealt with all issues that needed to be addressed, but basically, you know, issues that came before the Senate generally did not run into filibusters, you know, generally passed either at a narrow majority, sometimes they acquired supermajority support, but they it functioned. They dealt with the issues that they had to deal with in a relatively timely fashion. And civil rights did not get dealt with at all for close to 100 years. So I think that that sort of, to me, points to back to the filibuster as the as a leading cause here. So you've got you know rank and file groups of senators who want to be led because it makes their lives easier. You've got leaders who want to exert control because they like control. Um, and then on top of that, you've got a clog in the artery, which is the need to get 60 votes, um, which backs everything up and requires these extended negotiations over every little thing when the minority chooses to, you know, to make life difficult, which in a polarized political environment dominated by negative partisanship, they are going to do more often than not because they can, and it serves a rational political interest. So I, 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 James, I've read your work on this. I agree with a lot of it. I think it would be great if, if there was sort of a culture shift here and senators decided they didn't want to stand for this um, and they would show up in the floor in, in a quorum and, and demand that the Senate, you know, go forward um, or demand that even in private, their leadership change directions and, and conduct things differently. But, you know, I think part of the problem is that there just isn't that organic motivation right now among rank and files to, to take back the power, essentially. <laughs> like, I think they should, you know, take back power from leadership. 
but they just don't seem to want to. And I think that's part of the problem here. Yeah. And I think real quick, I think this is an important point and I think it really illustrates not to disagree or agree on the filibuster per se, but that what this reflects, I mean, there we have senators who say we need a, to, a talking filibuster rule. We have a talking filibuster rule. We have rules that can make it very hard for individuals to filibuster. You can schedule business to make it very hard for senators to do things. And the second a senator realizes that they're going to lose, it becomes really hard for them to get other people to join them. And and civil rights may be a unique issue, but the broad scope of things that now are vetoed by filibusters, it's just astonishing to me that they would probably pass with 70, 80 votes and do so in a day or two if you actually were determined to do it. But what's interesting, you have to let go and have a more freewheeling environment for that to happen. And so I think what you're seeing is the clash, just as you said it, of rank and file and and the leaders, which are symbiotic, right? I mean, it's not one or the other. And they're their inability or unwillingness to have a more chaotic and uncertain uh, process in exchange for the deliberation they say they want and also for action. I believe 100 percent the, the Senate could pass comprehensive immigration reform right right now. It couldn't in 2007 when my former bosses blocked it and been the end, but it could now. But the reason why it doesn't is because it can't do it by a like kind of a factory oriented process where they negotiate it all ahead of time and then put it on the floor and then say, okay, we're going to do this. And we're unwilling to have a long drawn out debate and allow senators to exhaust themselves, et cetera, because that may be a little too chaotic and, and expose divisions on either side that we don't want to do. And so I think that's the the rub. How do you, you, can you make the Senate work in this, with this kind of current control oriented mindset with even without the filibuster, I'm not sure that's the case, but sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, no, well, I think, Adam. yeah, and I just would say, you know, to, to me, to, to sort of si- simulate at least a, a, a talking filibuster, I think my view is you ultimately have to have majority cloture to, to make that happen. And I think that that's, I always come back to majoritarianism because it, that is the simplest way to just get things moving again. And I think everything else, the sh- culture shift, all that thing, all that other stuff would start to change if bills were just moving along on a, on a majority vote basis and and people either had to decide to get on board or just sit on the sidelines. And I think that would change the incentive structure, um, especially for the minority. Yeah, so I guess my question was kind of going, going afield of this and thinking about the larger political environment and the impact of the larger political environment. Obviously, Lee has written a lot about mass partisanship and about the party system. I'm the resident presidency person. So I was kind of thinking about I'm always thinking about the president's role in the party system and the way in which presidential politics have become so presidentialized. And I was kind of trying to think out the logic of that. And it occurred to me that senators are sort of uniquely vulnerable to that. Members of of the House, I think, still have maybe a fighting chance of cultivating a kind of district relationship or a personal brand. I don't know that we see a ton of that, but it seems like it's easier to do with a district than with a whole state. And that, you know, as a result, the Senate's become incredibly nationalized and like Harry Enten and other people at at 538 have documented this, this sort of rise of the Senate vote correlating really clearly with the with the presidential vote. And so I'm sort of like thinking about how that how the state of affairs in which partisanship forms the kind of basis of identity and the basis of the political incentives, how that actually cuts against more meaningful forms of of collective action in a legislative context, right? Um, in which people can find can find common ground. It also occurs to me, I keep asking these like double barreled 
complex questions, but that's that's sort of what we do here. Um, the other thing you know, I'm thinking about, and this makes me think of like Michael Tesler's work on how issues became racialized under Obama. I don't know if that if you're familiar with with that more in the political behavior vein, but like as James is kind of talking about how civil rights is no longer is no longer explicitly on the agenda. Now it's like every issue has a civil rights element to it, right? Or every issue has a, a racial element to it. And if that's also driving this, so I'm not even really sure if there's a question there, but those are just some things I've been thinking about, about how the world outside the Senate is shaping these internal institutional dynamics. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because on the one hand, you've got strict partisanship. And then on the other hand, within the party, you know, you've got this broad spectrum that ranges from Manchin to Sanders. And so, you know, I would argue that, you know, when Madison was talking about factions and being somewhat sanguine about how majority rule was that was basically okay, because to get a majority in as big and diverse a country as the US, even at the time, you know, you would have to string together a lot of different interests. You know, I would argue that a party that that accommodates both Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders represents that idea that, you know, yes, it's majority rule, but really anything that can get a majority is going to have to represent a pretty broad, broad range of views, even though all of those views are within one party. And I think you can make the same argument on the Republican side that you've got, you know, Josh Hawley to Lisa Murkowski. But I, but I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm of the view that, that you have to just loosen things up and that I don't think you can reasonably say that if you get rid of the filibuster, it will dissipate partisanship and things will start to bloom in a bipartisan direction. I think you can reasonably hope that that's the case. I don't think that's crazy to, to think as a possibility um, for the simple reason that, that once things start moving, you know, right now, if you're in the minority, you have three options. You can, you can join with the majority, you can do nothing, or you can block the majority and make them look bad and gain your, for yourself politically. If you take away that third option and your options are, to either get on board and work with the majority or just sit on the sidelines, I think for at least some folks in the minority, the temptation to get credit and to try to influence the policy will overtake the option of just sitting on the sidelines and complaining. Um, I, I wonder a lot what would have happened with Obamacare if he'd come into office you know, with a 67% approval rating, the highest since JFK, and there had been no question that, his, that Obamacare was going to pass because he had 58 up to 60 votes. And he clearly would be able to hold on to at least, you know, that enough Democrats to pass it. And he had a, a reasonably moderate proposal um, based on Romney care. Would the calculus have changed? I, I don't know the answer, but I think you could make a pretty good argument that, first of all, negotiations wouldn't have lasted a year and sort of taken the, the political capital out of it. But, but maybe folks like Collins, Snow, Grassley, Enzi, who had sincerely worked on healthcare for decades who considered a big part of their achievement, Grassley, who had advocated policies almost identical to Obamacare, was an ardent defender of the individual mandate, they would have just gotten on board and this thing could have passed with 70 votes if there'd been no question of passage. I mean, that's similar to what happened with Medicare, um, where it was bottled up until the Democrats secured such a massive supermajority that it was clear it was moving no matter what, and, and it, people got on board. You could flip it around and look at the Bush tax cuts uh, where Republicans use reconciliation to pass it. So Democrats sort of fought them tooth and nail until it became clear they had a majority. And then once they had a majority, a bunch of Democrats jumped on board. So I, I wonder once legislative trains start moving, if it does loosen up 
this hard partisanship and you start you start to see Joe Manchin voting more often with Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins than he does with Bernie Sanders. Maybe they're weird coalitions that form at the other end of the spectrum. We saw uh, Sanders and Hawley join on on the um, two thousand dollar checks. And, you know, there's a big movement for sort of that right wing populism going right now. So I think that the, you can't really have that possibility of, of new coalitions forming and partisanship loosening when you always have the ability to, to simply throw a monkey wrench in. And so I think that returning it to that system where things pass, I'm not going to sit here and say, predict that it's definitely going to lead to that, that blossoming of bipartisanship and reforming of coalitions, but I think it will help. And I think it creates a, a more favorable conditions for those kind of things to, to emerge than what we have right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Lee, do you want to ask one more question before we wrap up? So I want to pick up here on this question about what might happen if the filibuster is removed. And I want to kind of tease out a few threads that we've been weaving together in this conversation as the causes of Senate dysfunction. So one thread is this sort of culture that you were talking about previously, Adam, of uh, senators just sort of wanting to leave everything to leadership and wanting to have a predictable schedule and not really wanting to engage in the rough and tumble of uncertainty. Uh, Then there's sort of the structural factors. Julia was alluding to some of them in in her question about presidentialization, hyper- polarization of parties. Adam, you were talking about the important role of campaign finance uh, as just a a time suck, if nothing else. I think there's another factor that we haven't discussed as much here, but to me is is one of the central uh, factors, which is just this uh, increasing radicalization of the Republican Party and the the sort of rising extreme Trumpist uh, liberal wing. And then there's the filibuster, uh, at, in there too. So given those uh, broader structural factors, I mean, I, I certainly would support getting rid of the filibuster. And, you know, maybe that's the thing that unleashes a, a bunch of other things that makes them possible. But sort of having been in the Senate for a while and around the Senate, like, how do you think about the, the relative importance of these different factors? Or are they all basically part of one big mega factor. I think that they're part of one big mega factor. And I, I tried in the book, I sort of just try to stay in my lane on this one where it's like, I leave it to you guys to, to you know, tease out the the, the bigger picture stuff. To me, I, I think that th- there will be lots of downstream impacts um, from getting rid of the filibuster that I think will be generally positive. But but what I always come back to, you know, in my sort of long dark nights of the soul where I lay awake wondering if, if this is the right thing to advocate for, and the reason I keep coming back to yes, is that we just have to be able to get things done. Like, for, to me, that is the, the issue of paramount importance here. And we've had, you know, many different attempts at reform that sort of try to tinker at the margins. And I just think that fundamentally, we have a system that is incapable of passing solutions that have bi- broad bipartisan support in the public, that have you know expert consensus, um, and that in past eras I think would have passed relatively easily. And our system just is incapable of of doing this now. I mean, I, I, in the book I come back to the the example of the Mansion Toomey background check bill, sort of a formative example where you could not possibly come up with a more reasonable um, policy solution than expanding, you know, creating universal background checks after the massacre of 21st graders. Uh, and that is a great example where I think that if that had been 
able to pass on a majority threshold, that thing would have passed with 80 votes. But because the minority is able to block it and because the interest groups like the NRA expected them to block it, um, they did it. So I, I think that you know, there is there is this massive problem in the country with with the increasing radicalization. And by the way, I I, I think I almost don't want to say this out loud because it's, it sounds too Pollyannish and makes me sound like someone who thinks the filibuster is, is sort of the panacea to all of our ills. But I feel like there's there's an element here where the increasing radicalization of the Republican Party is partially enabled by the fact that they can own the libs all the time. And that's what their base expects of them. And I think it would be healthy for them to cease to be able to own the libs as much as they can um, and have people start passing things. Um, maybe it won't have an impact, but I think that like there's a healthy balance in this country where liberals and progressives pass big expansions of the federal government and expand the social safety net and expand civil rights and all these things, spend way too much money. And then Republicans come in and cut it back and do their thing. To, to keep our system in balance. And I think that we've fallen out of that balance where there's basically one party that is advocating for a lot of solutions that have massive bipartisan support and another party that is just working to block them um, at every opportunity. So, you know, maybe that is expecting too much. Um, and But even if none of those things happen, and even if there are other unintended consequences that are negative of the filibuster, I, I always come back to the fact that at least things that need to pass are going to pass and that will be fundamentally good for the country and will be a net benefit down the road. And I think that it, it's sort of, for me, it's the threshold condition to all the other things. You have to do this um, to enable perhaps a flourishing of bipartisanship, to enable a loosening of, of partisan loyalties perhaps. But you know, maybe the reaction to the possibility of majority rule in the Senate is that people stop towing the party line as much. Um, maybe that happens. But I just think that fundamentally the system, this has become such a big clog in the artery. This is the thing that is you know, threatening our system to have cardiac arrest, um, that it needs to change for, for anything else to change. I like that clog in the artery thing. I, I, I want to expand that question, actually, to, to think about the, the consequences of not only uh, removing the filibuster, but the legislation that Democrats would pass if they removed the filibuster. And I think H.R. 1 is probably the, the biggest thing there. So it's, I mean, I, I, as you say, you know, if Democrats remove the filibuster, they're probably going to do a bunch of other stuff with that HR1, possibly DC statehood. So if you think about the triumvirate of removing the filibuster and then HR1, S1, and DC statehood, I mean, it, I, I think that's, we ought to think about that, at least in this moment, as, as a as a package, is is that right to think of it that way? And and how how should we think about the potential transformation there beyond just removing the filibuster? Yeah, I think that is right to think of it as a package. You know, there's some tension here between it's like what what do Mansion and Cinema do? Obviously, that's a big tension. Um, and then there's a tension between what is the Biden administration's priority and what are Mansion and Cinema's priority. And I think that you could you could make the case as some have that. Mansion would probably be fine with a system where we pass whatever we can through reconciliation as currently constructed, and then things like uh, voting rights fall by the wayside. But I think that ultimately the deciding factor is that Biden can't accept uh, that sort of bifurcation where things that can, you know, for the relatively arbitrary reason that they can comply with reconciliation rules, certain things pass by a majority, and then every civil rights and democracy reform issue fails by the filibuster, you know, and of course the sort of 
poetic injustice of of civil rights failing because of this Jim Crow relic, as Obama has called it. Um, that's that's not sustainable for him for Biden. So I think that will eventually be what leads him to ask Manchin to to come along to some version of reform. Cinema, I, I take less seriously in her objections. Um, but, I, and I think ultimately for her, it's, you know, a question of, is she going to tell, if Mark Kelly, who's up in 2022, comes to her and says, you know, look, this is three or four months from now, everything that's passed the reconciliation is passed. And, and now we need to reform the filibuster to pass anything else. And my election hinges on, on, you know, actually getting things done. I don't think cinema is going to tell him to take a hike. Um, and then you can, you know, every other Democrat up in 2022 will be having the same conversation with them. So I think ultimately those, that package will pass. But I also think, you know, what's going to happen is it's going to, the coming months are going to clarify what it is that the filibuster is preventing from passing. Part of the conversation right now is, is the idea that by, by supporting the filibuster, Manchin and Cinema are blocking things like Medicare for all or the Green New Deal from passing. And it, the coming months are going to clarify that that's not what they're blocking. If we got rid of the filibuster, Medicare for all is still not going to pass. You know, the Green New Deal is a huge package. It's still not going to pass because Joe Manchin has the power to prevent it from passing. Um, I think what's going to become clear is that, you know, much more fundamental building blocks of the basic Biden agenda are what is being blocked here. And that's where I think, you know, we're going to get a clearer sense of what is possible in a post nuclear post-reform Senate, and that that clarification is going to actually build pressure towards reform because it will essentially be the success or failure of the Biden administration hanging in the balance. Um, and that kind of pressure, not pressure to pass you know, big lefty legislation, is going to want ultimately be what um, causes reform to happen. So we're coming up on an hour here. So I think I'm going to ask you, uh, Adam, if you have any any last words, and then we'll leave it there. No, I, I just really enjoyed this. It was it was fun to dive into these questions that um, I think are extremely important, but get lost in a lot of the sort of more you know surface level discussions. But this was was really fantastic, and you know getting to talk to you guys whose work contributed to the book and contributes to my own thinking in a big big way was was really uh, fun and rewarding for me. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, James Lee. Brief final thoughts before we sign off. Yeah, no, I. Again, I highly recommend the book. I think there is an interesting interplay here uh, between the way senators want the Senate to operate and then their dislike of the filibuster. And thinking about the future, one thing that really stands out to me is, you know, the filibuster helps Senate leaders because they're the ones who can easily amass 41 votes. If you're an outlier, a progressive or a conservative, it's very hard to convince your colleagues on your own to block closure on something. And what's interesting in thinking about what comes next is that if you don't have the filibuster per se or the threat of people getting rid of the filibuster, then all of a sudden it becomes very hard to control the chamber. You Senators can just offer amendments whenever they want, appeal the ruling of the chair. In the past, when senators have tried to do that, the leaders have said, don't vote with them, even though you may want to for the policy, because that will lead to getting rid of the filibuster. And so ironically, I think getting rid of the filibuster could ultimately open the floodgates 
And I'm not a fan of the nuclear option, but I think it could ultimately, in an ironic way, make a Senate that I think we should have more likely to exist because there's literally no re- nothing to stop individual senators from demanding votes and to forcing their proposals on the floor. And that's, I think, I agree with Adam that that's what we need. And I, you know, I hope we could get there without the nuclear option, but we'll see. Awesome, Lee. Any, anything you want to add? I think James said it very well. <laughs> uh, eliminate the filibuster. Let's, let's let the Senate be a deliberative body again. All right. So this has been an episode of Politics in Question in which we have had much less disagreement than we often do. Thank you again so much, Adam Gentleson, for, for joining us. Uh, check out his book, Kill Switch. And uh, we will see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.